Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum. This is one of over 900 programs that we've done at the Commonwealth Club since the pandemic began. And um, today we have Victoria Kastner here. She's done a book on Julia Morgan, the famous uh, architect um, from Oakland. Not famous enough for what she's done. So uh, Victoria is here to set that right. Thanks a lot for joining us, Victoria. It's my pleasure, George. So you told me just a little while ago that you worked at uh, the Hearst Castle at San Simeon for many years. Um, and then you wanted to dig more into it. And you learned much more about Julia Morgan after that. And we can, we can start with some of that personal information you found out because it was fascinating what she went through. Even she, she even had a wicked stepmother. That's what I liked about it. <laughs> no, I study her my whole career because I was the official historian at Hearst Castle and wrote three books about its history. And I thought I knew her well, but I left there in order to write this biography and give it all my attention in 2018. And and it's good that it came out this year because this is her 150th year. It's her sesquicentennial. She was born on January 27th, uh, 20th of 1872. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, I found out that her life was more difficult, that she faced and conquered more challenges uh, in her personal life, caring for her family, dealing with her own health issues and challenges. And it made this uh, story, which is really the first uh, biography about her life rather than her buildings, mm-hmm. it, it it made it uh, seem very uh, urgent uh, to tell to tell her inspiring story. Uh, you, you did a great job of combining uh, because the architecture and the pictures and everything just gorgeous collection of, of the stuff that she has done as well. But but let's start with maybe where she got her fascination with architecture, which was uh, the family home that the wicked stepmother walked off with. So why, why don't you tell? That's a, such a great origin story. It's better than a log cabin story. So. <laughs> and what George is referring to is um, Julia's family on the maternal side, which had been wealthy. Um, uh, they, the, uh, her mother, uh, Eliza Parmalee's family, often subsidized the family because Julia's own father was not a big business success. But anyway, uh, Eliza's mother uh, came and lived with the family from the time Julia was 10 until she was 18. And so Julia grew up hearing about a beautiful home uh, in Kent County, Maryland, uh, that was called Woodland Hall. Uh, where Julia's grandmother, Sarah, had grown up. But uh, her mother died when Sarah was 12, and her father remarried, and the wicked stepmother, to whom you refer, um, uh, was the second wife, and she managed to get the house uh, sold uh, to the other part of the family, and Sarah never was able to go back there. And so Julia, uh, it's, it still exists. It's in, it's in um, Kent County, mm-hmm. and it's on the National Register of Historic Places but mm-hmm. um, in Baltimore. But Julia knew uh, that, that uh, there were great houses in her, in her past, and mm-hmm. yet she never got to see it. Though she had a, a portrait of Woodland Hall that she carried with her um, through her entire life. Yeah, and uh, and seemed to to want to recreate things all all the time for other people. I think she certainly understood people loving their homes uh, from this, because what was the grandmother right that, that talked about it a lot? Yeah, that's right. And I do think she understood homes in in the very real sense mm-hmm. of being a shelter and sanctuary, safety and comfort. And that was why her career was so extraordinary, was whether she was building the smallest or really literally one of the largest estates in the country, which is William Randolph Hearst Estate, San Simeon. She always put the same amount of care uh, into it and always uh, considered the client and what would make uh, that space a real, a real sanctuary for them personally. Well, let's talk about that for just a moment, because you said that some of the critics and why she wasn't as famous have said you, you you gave in to your, your clients too much and did what they wanted rather than did it your own way. I, I don't know if they all read Ayn Rand too much or something, but <laughs> <laughs> but architects usually do do what the client wants, I would assume. Well, it depends. Uh, you know, <laughs> we're talking ahead of the program, George, about uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, and he would give you what he thought you should have. And when you hired him, that was why you hired him, mm-hmm. uh, to get his building and his ideas, whereas... Um, Julia Morgan was always interested in what each individual wanted, and it might be something rather eccentric. There were uh, there was a couple in Berkeley uh, who didn't like right angles, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so she built them a house that that didn't have any. Mm-hmm. And there was 
man in Northern California in Marysville, where it got cold in the morning, who told her that he didn't like to get out of bed in order to turn the heat on. So she created a contraption underneath the covers so that he could remain in bed and get the room warm. And then there was a a fellow with a still uh, down at San Simeon, the grocer, had his uh, you know his family still, and she created a secret closet for it. Whatever <laughs> needed to feel safe and and home, she would she would do. But it is true that in the nineteen um, eighties and nineties, especially, people said, "Well, you know, she's a client's architect. Like that's mm. a bad thing, right?" And uh. she doesn't have a style, you know, because she would she did work in so many different. Uh, styles, but there always was an underlying consistency to her work, you know, in terms of its symmetry, in terms of its plan, even though she would use the, you know, a lot of rich languages of Mediterranean, Californian, English, Tudor, whatever, you know, but you could always still tell it was a Julia Morgan building because of the thought and care she put into its systems, you know, its infrastructure, its entrances, its windows, that sort of thing. She even did fairy tale homes. I thought that was interesting. You know, the, the fairy tale homes in the woods. Um, for William Randolph Hearst, she built an enormous estate called um, Wintoon, W-Y-N-T-O-O-N. That's like a Bavarian village right out of the Brothers Grimm. Mm-hmm. And there are uh, actually, I'm going to show a f- photograph of it uh, today. Oh, there are um, scenes uh, of the house, you know, painted in Brothers Grimm fairy tales, and she did design that as well. Well, why don't we take a look at some of the pictures that you brought because they're they're excellent. Also, give us an idea about who Julia Morgan was because she's she's uh, self-effacing even in her pictures, and uh, maybe that's one of the reasons. Oh, one one last question before we get started is: sure. Did she do much outside of California? Which was pretty much California, right? Well, her westernmost work was in Hawaii. She did several buildings right. for the YWCA in Hawaii, and really, um, she didn't do much to the east of Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I think that's one reason why she wasn't as well known. Mm-hmm. Uh, because because her work was in the West. She said, and here's a shot of her in, in uh, her 40s, around 1920. She said, I consider it a great advantage to um, have grown up in the place where I practice architecture. And in that she was rare because mm-hmm. there were, though there were many architects on the West Coast in the first part of the 20th century, they were, they were mostly transplants. Bernard mm-hmm. Maybeck had grown up in New York. So had John Galen Howard, who designed the University of California's buildings. The Green Brothers, Charles and Henry, who in Northern and Southern California did such beautiful work. They were born in Cincinnati and, and grew up in St. Louis. But she was a native Californian. She was born in San Francisco. And as I said, on January 20th of 1872. And in terms of writing this book, uh, you'll see the cover next. Um, I was very fortunate to have as a collaborator um, a magnificent um, architecture photographer named Alexander Vertikoff. And the cover of the book shows a, a wonderful swimming pool at the Berkeley Women's City Club, as it was then known. But um, he spent literally months, uh, you know, uh, exploring Julia Morgan buildings. And we felt that because she was a visual artist, it was important uh, that we sh- tell her story, not just with words, but with images. And so the book has 150 photographs, many of which have never been seen before. So the uh, next one you'll see is Julia Morgan around 16. She went to Oakland High School. She grew up, as I said, well, she was bo- born in San Francisco, but at the age of two, she moved to um, Oakland. And Oakland High School, Oakland was the was the great uh, uh, elegant suburb of San Francisco at, 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 in the uh, 1870s and 80s when she was living there. Uh, the house where the family lived was on 14th Street, which is now the on-ramp to the 980 freeway. So a lot of But uh, you can get a sense of how what a true kind of Bay Area person she was. And the next photo you'll see is her uh, at, at the UC campus when she attended because she did think about music and she did think about medicine, uh, but she did want ultimately to study architecture so yes you'll see that the campus was very small um mm. it was four buildings uh you know and in, in the middle of a, a field and she also had a second cousin lucy uh who had married a prominent east coast architect his name was pierre lebrun and his uh, metlife tower still exists on madison avenue one of the for a brief while the the uh, tallest building in new york around 1910 so those were reasons that she studied architecture but at the time she was at cal 
they didn't have an architecture major. So she majored actually in civil engineering. And of course, as a young woman, she was very, very rare in doing so. It was 1890 to 94 that she was at Cal. And um, there were a couple of women who'd also studied civil engineering, but no one who ever did anything with it as a career. And when she graduated, just after she graduated, she met a, a person who was a great friend and mentor through the rest of her uh, life. And that was the man uh, I just mentioned, Bernard Maybeck. And he was, as I said, an East Coast architect who came West and blessed California with some of its most extraordinary buildings. Um, many of the viewers and listeners probably know the um, Palace of Fine Arts, which is his lagoon and rotunda and colonnade that was created for the 1915 World's Fair uh, in San Francisco. So Maybeck always said, dream big. And though he was a ca colorful character, his waistband ended somewhere right around his armpits and he wore handmade clothes and and his colleagues often laughed at him, actually made fun of him, called him a freak. But he was he was a, a compelling architect and very good at convincing people to follow their dreams. Dream big, he said. And he convinced Julia to go to Paris. And you'll see her next in the apartment where she um, mm -hmm. took up a residence. He had gone to the finest school in the world for architects. It was the École des Beaux-Arts, the School of Fine Arts. And it had been founded in 1648 as a feeder school for the artisans who ultimately end up working on Versailles. It had never admitted a woman. And when Julia traveled to Paris, which she did in 1896, uh, she set about trying to become accepted there. Now, she joined a, a studio. That's what you did. You practiced uh, so that you'd get adept before you took these hard e examinations. And she was harassed in the studio. She wrote to Pierre and Lucie Lebrun. She said about her male colleagues at this studio, one of them is very gentlemanly, but the rest of them could have been exchanged with no difficulty. And <laughs> later, she had water poured over her head. She was uh, pushed off the ends of benches. These were uh, studios uh, founded by men in their 20s, Frenchmen in their 20s, and they had a centuries-old um, hazing tradition, you know. So she uh, had a difficult time. Now, she took the examination and didn't pass the first time, which was not that uncommon. Many people uh, didn't. But the second time she took it, she thought she'd done better, and yet her score was worse. And she met the uh, uh, head of the studio, the architect, and asked him what, what was wrong. And he had a funny look on his face, and he said, your score, the the judges who were the instructors at the ECHO had, had deliberately lowered her score. They said, we don't want to encourage young girls. And I don't believe they would have lowered her score if she were not going to pass, you know, but she still persevered. She said, it's very funny. She said, but I'll try again just to let them know the young girls are not discouraged. And that was so typical of her. So she did basically embarrass them into admitting her. Uh, and she was admitted in 1898. And at that point, you know, she was about 27. And you had to finish all your studies at the Ecole at crewing points, entering contests before you turned 30. Now, what American architects did study there generally took six years to finish. She had only three, but um, she was able to audit classes and she would go through what they call the Palais des Etudes, the, the study hall. And the, the men were so outraged. They'd admitted women in 1897 to painting and sculpture. And nobody had even considered that a woman would want to apply to the architecture department, you know. But the men were so incensed about having women in the school that they rioted. They followed them through the streets. They chased them. Many of them were arrested. So um, it was a difficult thing. But she persevered. And her winning uh, uh, prize drawings, you'll see, the next one is a sketch. She was given an assignment, design a, a, a theater for a palace. You'd get 12 hours locked in a room. And you then you turned in this rough sketch. And then you came back six weeks later. And you'll see the finished drawings next. You um, had these very large drawings uh, that were in plan section and elevation and if in any way your final work diverged from the 12 hour sketch that you turned in, you were disqualified from the competition and competing winning points was how you made your way through the program. So when she did it, when she these, these were the last two drawings that got her over the uh, end. But she, what she got was a certificate, the certificate. She wasn't able to get a diploma by the time she turned 30 because you would have had to do a year internship in an architect's office. And she lost the ability to have that year because she was artificially prevented, 
you know, from being mm-hmm. admitted to the program for a year. But nevertheless, you know, she she never let um, in, impediments slow her down. And when she came back to um, the Bay Area in 1902 at the age of 30, to her acute dismay, she found that she was world famous. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, you know, and no woman had been admitted to this program since 1648. And certainly no woman had graduated from it. But she immediately started doing important commissions in the Bay Area. And you'll see one of the major ones, and that is the bell tower. It was called El Campanile at Mills, which was the college for women in Oakland. And it's designed like a kind of mission tower. It's 72 feet high. It has mission bells and looks very uh, Spanish. And for 1904, when it was finished, it was the height of modernity, you know, at Mills College. And it was all concrete, 72 feet high and steel reinforced concrete. And it turned out that two uh, two years later, that became extremely significant because the uh, San Francisco earthquake happened in eight, April of 1906, one of the biggest Templars ever in North American history. And this tower survived without a single crack in it. And because of that, she got a commission right away uh, to help rebuild the Fairmont Hotel on Knob Hill in San Francisco. Now, it was an elegant hotel and it was just days away from opening when the earthquake hit. And not only did the fires and it was fires that gutted the city, George, after the earthquake, right. you know, for days. And uh, that's what did so much of the damage. But also, uh, not only was it gutted by fire, its foundations had moved seven feet from, uh, you know, their original positions. And Julia Morgan was hired to re-engineer it, which was a task many people did not think uh, was even possible. Mm-hmm. And it was the first major building to come back after the 06 quake and you'll see a beautiful shot of it it's of course still a a a gorgeous hotel today so she finished this building um exactly a year to the day uh after the quake on time under budget and you can imagine what an enormous uh you know, a mood lift this was for a very, very beleaguered citizens of San Francisco. Of course, the earthquake also meant that many people left the, the San Francisco and moved over to the East Bay area, you know, which had functioning utilities and, uh, you know, bigger lots and better weather. And mm-hmm. so you'll see a couple of her kind of bungalows. And, and we would call these uh, First Bay tradition today, but they're the typical kind of single family home shingled uh, with wood on the outside. In Berkeley, the lots were deep but not wide. And so uh, Julia Morgan, typically, this is the kind of practical thing that she would do. She would put the entrance to the house down the side. Mm-hmm. So the front of the building facing the street has windows, but you'd walk midway down and then enter there. And if you turn to the right, you'd go to the a dining room. If you turn to the left, you'd go to the living room. You know, I mean, it was just mm-hmm. one of many, many practical ways. One of these two modest houses she actually gave to one of her employees. She was extremely generous to her staff and mm-hmm. and mentored many, many young people. And when he lost his home in the uh, Berkeley uh, fire of 1923, she sold him one of these houses for a dollar. And that was, you know, pretty typical of mm-hmm. her stuff. She did. So she did small houses. She did uh, major houses as well. And she also did a lot of work for the YWCA. I assume that, that her employees stuck with her for many years. Oh, they did. They got and treated like that. Yes. The man that she gave that house to was named Thaddeus Joy. He and his wife named their eldest daughter, Julia. Mm-hmm. And uh, his daughter and son and sister all worked for Julia Morgan, as well as Thaddeus Joy, uh, during almost his entire career. She was a very generous employer. She um, did profit sharing. If In a good year, she would... She would um, share of you know the profits with her staff members so uh you know she she was a a marvelous employer but she was also an exacting one you know Mm -hmm. and she was interested in the history of the past the history of architecture also in the arts and crafts tradition and a silamar which means refuge by the sea is the ywca kind of summer Mm -hmm. camp experience and since it's still open uh, today, George, it's possible to stay there. It's been beautifully maintained. But Julia designed almost uh, a, well more than a dozen buildings there, and and uh, including the chapel and the auditorium. And they all have this exposed wood, this uh, beautiful feeling of of arts and crafts atmosphere. This chapel was also used as a stage, and at the very back of it is a window because, of course, the most important thing. Uh, was the view. So she worked for the YWCA. She worked for small um, homeowners, but she also did from the beginning some very elaborate houses. And the next one you'll see is from um, Piedmont, which is the community uh, between Oakland and Berkeley in the in the hills. 
and it's a 10,000 square foot elegant home in an English Tudor style. And the client, uh, Mr. Lombard, actually uh, showed Julia a sketch, uh, I mean, a watercolor of a 19th century home mm -hmm. in England that he'd collected. And he said, could you build me a house that looks like it? <laughs> you know, and so <laughs> that's another example of the kind of accommodating uh, that, that she did. Now, she started uh, working for William Randall first pretty much uh, right away after after she returned from Paris. She'd met his mother. Mm -hmm. Phoebe Appsonhurst, while she was in Paris, uh, Bernard Maybeck had introduced uh, Phoebe Hurst and Julia Morgan. And Phoebe instantly wanted to pay for Julia's education. And she had so many students that she, she was a great philanthropist. And But Julia wrote her and said, you know, your, your, your faith in me is enough of a gift. But they did stay in touch. And, and Phoebe introduced Julia and William Randolph Hurst, the newspaper publisher who was her only son. So we know they met around 1903, and he almost immediately started hiring her. She, he did. Uh, she did a, an examiner building for him in Los Angeles. She did a little cabin on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. But when Phoebe Hurst died, and that was in 1919, and um, California came to a halt, uh, there was moments of silence. The flags were half-masked. A woman had never been so honored. But she had founded the PTA and built the University of California and started the Save the Redwoods League and and uh, restored the missions. And she'd been a great philanthropist to so many uh, causes, you know. So anyway, uh, when she died and William Randolph Hearst was 56 in 1919, the land he'd camped on since he was a boy was now his. And he walked into her office and he was overheard. Uh, by one of the employees, and and he was overheard saying, "Miss Morgan, I'm I'm tired of camping on the hill at San Simeon. I'm getting old for tents, and I'm thinking of building something more permanent." And he promised her the project at San Simeon would take only six months and be one bungalow. Well, <laughs> it took 28 years from 1919 to 1947. And the next shot will show you it's an aerial view, just how remote it is. It um, the the landscape. It's exactly midway between San Francisco and Los Angeles. So it's in a, a range of mountains called the Santa Lucias that runs right up the uh, edge of California, right along the coast. And um, it, the uh, hills are very high and there's no, the roads are very few, you know, there's no train service. And we know the first time what happened when Julia went to San Simeon to see it for the first time. She was 47, WR was 56. And he met her at the train station in San Luis Obispo, which was about 45 miles away. And that was a two-hour drive by taxi in those days. They got to the, literally the end of the road at the little village of San Simeon, and there were two saddled horses sitting there. And Julia looked at WR. She said, I'm 47, and I don't ride, and I have no intention of changing that. So what they did was put WR on the horse, keep Julia in the taxi, and the taxi driver, who fortunately documented this, he, he wrote about it, he gunned the engine and drove it from sea level straight up 1,600 feet and uh, dodging the major rocks along the way. And they called over a couple of cowboys who rode alongside the taxi, and their job was to rope the bumper and pull it over the unmanageable parts. So that gives you a sense of how incredibly remote this was. There was nothing on the hilltop except platformed tents where the family had been camping ever since uh, William's father, who was the uh, source of the fortune. George Hearst was the Bonanza King, this uh, silver, copper, and gold miner. And he bought the San Simeon land in 1865 when William was only two. So uh, WR inherited it in 1919, and he and Julia Morgan started on this six-month one bungalow project. Well, one of her employees said within a month they were going on the grand scale, and that's the way to talk about it. It was 110,000 square feet, five major buildings, and the construction on it went on for 28 years. But the surprising thing, George, is that it was number 503 in her job list, Julia mm -hmm. Morgan's job she designed 700 buildings. So her practice continued all this time that she's working on San Simeon. And when we consider that she couldn't vote in a presidential election mm -hmm. in 1919, and she'd already done 500 commissions, mm -hmm. San Simeon only gets one number, even though it's so vast. It's just astonishing uh, what she accomplished. And it was a very modern uh, uh, compound, as you'll see in the next slide. It, it There was a main building, and it looks very much like a church. And then that was surrounded by... Uh, little cottages, and they called it Casa Grande, the big house. It has 115 rooms, the main house, and um, four major stories, and about 48,000 square feet of floor space and a 15,000 square foot basement. And though it looks like a church, it really um, is is uh, a modern house, uh, steel reinforced concrete, but it's sheathed in limestone. 
So it looks, you know, as if he bought a, a, an entire cathedral, you know, and had it transferred stone by stone and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, reconstructed in the center of the California coastline. He adored it, and he was very involved in every aspect, and so was Julia. There was no landscape architect. There was no interior designer. It was the two of them conferring, and uh, among the most extraordinary things about San Simeon are its swimming pools. Mm-hmm. And we don't know if Julia even knew how to swim. <laughs> There's no evidence of it. And yet she designed almost three dozen swimming pools because she did so many for women's clubs and the YWCA's and things, you know. And uh, But this Roman plunge, as they called it, this indoor pool that was lined in mosaics of lapis blue and 22 karat gold. Um, and it is just, it, it's a, well, it's just a fantasy. It looks like uh, mm. something right out of the Far East. But the the mosaics were actually made in San Francisco, glued onto pieces of paper, two by two feet each, and then brought down to San Simeon and and pressed into the uh, wet uh, mortar. And um, Julia, we we interviewed one of the um, construction uh, superintendents, the tile setters, and he recalled that she said it looks too new. And so what he did was double up his fist and shove it, sock you know the some of the tiles after they'd just been placed, which made them look uneven. And it meant they caught the light more. And mm. she said that perfect, you know. So it's a very modern swimming pool. It was 10 feet deep. It had a platform for diving, uh, stairs that are hidden behind the walls to reach that one shallow alcove. It was heated the year round. It was lit with alabaster lamps that glow like moons on the water. But you feel like you've gone back to Ravenna in the 5th century. And there's not just one pool at San Simeon. There mm. are two. Can, we, can I show something? Can we back up that picture for a second? Sure, absolutely. For those who haven't been there, see the pool here is the long pool here so you don't see the whole pool and then there's a side pool here and this walkway up here this bridge that goes over that's a platform to dive into the pool from there's a platform pretty, for diving pretty 10 elaborate feet up, 10 feet of water and and it's lit because on above it are tennis courts that and so there are skylights right at the net area of the courts and mm-hmm. so this diving platform is suffused with with light mm-hmm. and then the gold tile which are in the middle you know there's clear glass above and below them and um but they uh, just uh, are illuminate and twinkle and sparkle but the as i say the the actual tile setting that was done at the club fagazi on green street in san francisco if any of the our viewers or listeners have been to the Beach Blanket Babylon through the years, that's where these tiles were set. So during the week, Julia Morgan's office was in San Francisco, and much of the work the artisans did was in the Bay Area. You know, mm. she'd come down to San Simeon maybe two times a month and kept a record, so we know, 568 trips by train, mm. eight hours each way. You know, she'd go down on Saturday after work and then um, – you know, take the train through the night and then be driven uh, to from San Luis Obispo train station to San Simeon, spend the whole day Sunday and then um, be driven right back and pick up the train on its way north. And fortunately, one of the engineers uh, went along with her one time and and we interviewed him. He said, I was exhausted Monday morning. You know, we get back and and I'm I'm just bushed and she just walks right into the office and goes to work. Mm-hmm. So that's how she was able to do this work on top of all of her other commissions. And as I, I'm so glad you mentioned that, George. And as I was saying, that there's two pools at San Simeon, and the one they call the Neptune Pool is named for this figure, this 17th century figure of the god of the sea, Neptune. And it's in the top of the of the pediment of a tower, uh, excuse me, an pediment of a temple that looks like it's from ancient Rome. And indeed, the columns that support the temple, the six columns, are from ancient Rome. Yet it's this shining uh, blue. Uh, turquoise blue uh, outdoor basin that was heated with kerosene fuel oiled boilers. It's 345,000 gallons of water and it was spectacular by day and by night. And as uh, one of the architecture critics uh, uh, of our time, uh, Charles Moore said, he called it a grand liquid ballroom. (laughs) So uh, atmospheric and theatrical and of course, Hollywood came uh, there to, uh, you know, enjoy it. Because Hearst uh, lived for many years with an actress named Marion Davies. They weren't able to marry because his wife, Millicent, uh, didn't divorce, uh, didn't want to divorce. And so Mrs. Hearst, Millicent Hearst, lived in New York with their five sons. Uh, but he lived out west with Marion Davies. And so her friends were Carol Lombard and Harpo Marx. And mm-hmm. and she's also bringing people like uh, Calvin Coolidge and Winston Churchill. And, of course, these pools were um, a, a tremendous focus. 
Um, but it's not just at San Simeon that she built pools. She did so many women's clubs, which just like the YWCA was important for young women to have a safe place to live when they went into cities and took jobs and left their family farms. Well, women's clubs in the first part of the 20th century were very important gathering places for women who were not necessarily working outside the home, but needed to feel a part of a community, you know. And I'm showing you a beautiful shot that my photographer Alex took of a fabulous staircase, all concrete at the Berkeley Women's City Club. This is one of the many clubs that uh, Julia designed. It had 48,000 square feet, and it's still the Berkeley City Club, still as a place you can stay in Berkeley today. And it, too, has a magnificent swimming pool. And it's the shot that uh, you'll see next, and it's also the shot on the cover of, of, mm -hmm. of my book. So, uh, you know, she didn't engineer all of her buildings, but because of her background in engineering... We know uh, that she really understood it. And this is the first floor of a six-story concrete structure and is perforated with these gorgeous Gothic windows and has these beautiful kind of mirror image arches that reflect into this turquoise water. But imagine how difficult it was to design this as the first floor and then put five heavy concrete stories atop it, mm -hmm. you know. So she really uh, understood the technical processes of building. But she also believed in... Uh, in, in spite of her buildings being very modern, in garbing them in this language of the past. And George, you mentioned Wintoon, the fairy tale uh, mm -hmm. houses. Now, this is an estate which is no longer, it's not visible, you know, to the public. It's owned by the Hearst Corporation uh, today and used by Hearst family members and corporate, uh, you know, for corporate functions and things. But this Wintoon was named after the native peoples of Northern California, the Wintoon tribe. And it uh, was Julie Morgan designed it as this Bavarian village with these beautiful um, fairy tale paintings from the Brothers Grimm. This is called Bear, uh, Brown Bear House, it tells the story of bear skin from the Brothers Grimm. And um, she designed this in Northern California at the base of Mount Shasta. So while she's building San Simeon, she's doing some of her best work, including the Berkeley City Club, which I just showed you, including Wintoon. But it turned out to be too much. You know, she uh, never really never had an off button. And mm -hmm. while Randall Hurst worried about her, he said, Miss Morgan, you must stop working so hard. You can't race all the time. You must rest sometime. But then the next thing he'd do in the next breath would say, but I want this and I want that and I want this. <laughs> and so it was a little inconsistent, right? She loved her work so much. And, and she really did live and breathe architecture. There's a, another theory that she may have been a, a lesbian because she never married. But actually... Um, uh, my my research colleague, uh, Ruth Latson and I have transcribed 800,000 words from her diaries and letters. And for someone for whom the myth is that she never left any evidence, it's quite remark a remarkable amount of material. It's in the archives at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in their special collections. And we're in the process of digitizing that material to make uh, the transcriptions, which are, of course, word searchable available to the public. But mm. in all of that work, there's no indication of a romance with anyone. You know, long-term mm. roommates, no female traveling companions. Her passion in life was architecture. And uh, yet it was it took a toll on her health. And we don't have many photographs of her, but the next one you'll see, uh, she ended up having chronic uh, ear problems all of her life, inner ear problems. And in the 30s, actually, there was an uh, a botched operation that severed her uh, mastoid process and and she lost her equilibrium which was a catastrophe for an architect she always climbed scaffolding you know and uh and it also gave her this distorted face it was very very difficult on her health she continued to work she continued to climb scaffolding she would ask uh, one of her employees a man whom she knew well to walk right in front of her and she'd put her finger in his coat pocket so that she could keep her balance but, um, you know, she did, she loved what she did. And after a, a long recuperation from a health problem, one of the letters that she wrote to Hearst, and there are 2,400 letters and telegrams just between Julia Morgan and William Randolph Hearst, which we've transcribed. But mm -hmm. one of these letters, as she said, how good it is to be back playing at work again. That's how mm -hmm. passionate she felt toward it. But you'll see toward the end of her career, she had a grand plan that never was finished. Uh, she and W.R. were going to build a monastery, uh, you know, out of out of the stones of a monastery. They were going to build a medieval museum in Golden Gate Park. Mm -hmm. He gave the stones of this 12th century um, monastery that he bought in Spain and had dismantled. It had been secularized, you know, in the 1830s, and it was being used as a stable, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, just an agricultural building. But he bought it, put it together. 
and they gave the stones to the people of San Francisco, and it was going to be a medieval museum, you know, concrete on the outside, uh, uh, clad in this old, uh, these old limestone uh, stones. But it was never completed, and that was a, a, a very sad might have been. It would have been like the Cloisters Museum on the East Coast, but... Um, right. They wanted to out-cloisters the cloisters, right? Exactly. That is exactly what they said. Without cloister the cloisters, yes. All made out of one building instead of fragments from many, as the East Coast Rockefellers, uh, you know, cloisters is. Anyway, her health really began to fail, and um, she had spent a great deal of her time caring for her family. Her mother ended up having um, uh, dementia problems. Her brother, uh, to whom she was closest, her younger brother, she basically supported him for much of his life. He ended up with early onset uh, dementia and uh, she had an elder brother whom she helped and he had died of of a mysterious cause. And my research assistant was able to figure out what it was. It was in 1918 and he had died of of syphilis. Mm -hmm. And even though this, which was a scandal and and a tragedy, and and Mm -hmm. even though uh, this older brother Parmalee had a wife and and other siblings, uh, it was Julia's name on his death certificate. Mm-hmm. So she was always looking out for the family. And you'll see a, a photograph of her as she aged. And she's on the far left kind of saying, take the mm-hmm. picture already. You know, she hated to be photographed. Uh, there's a, a, a woman a smiling standing just above her who was her nephew's wife. And it was uh, Flora North who gave the papers that Julia had saved to Cal Poly many years later in the 1980s. There's another woman smiling uh, named Sachi Oka, a young woman. Julia had hired her to be a housekeeper at a little halfway home that she bought for herself in Monterey, a place where she could recover. And she and Sachi became devoted friends. She gave Sachi a car when Sachi was still in high school. Uh, She, uh, Sachi and her husband, Kazuo, were sent sent into an internment camp during Mm -hmm. the second war and julia stayed in touch with them uh, sent them things and then when they got out they were going to go to detroit and thinking they could maybe work in the auto industry julia called sachi up and said i bought you a house mm-hmm. in Monterey near mine will you come home and sachi lived in that house for the rest of her life and you know we don't even know all of the generous things that uh julia did there there were so many uh, we know that she put a lot of the young women employees through school. And, you know, she she really money meant nothing to her. She, her passion was building. And, of course, San Simeon was her major project. And um, she did say about it. You'll see a gorgeous photo of it um, taken by uh, my colleague, Alex Vertikoff. She did say, you know, this is temporary for Mr. Hearst's use. The country needs museums of architecture not just statues and paintings. Well, W.R. had intended it to be a museum after he died, and he died in 1951 at the age of 88, and it was offered where he wanted it to go, which was the University of California. His mother had sponsored the building of the campus. It had been the Hearst Philanthropy for years, but they turned it down. Mm -hmm. It was expensive. It was large. It was far from anywhere, and so that was how it became a California State Park. And when it opened, which was in 1957, Julia had just died after herself, uh, uh, having uh, sadly uh, showed many signs of dementia her last year. She knew she she knew what it meant when her memory began to fail because she'd seen it uh, with her beloved family members as well. But she died in, in uh, 1957 at the age of 85, and that's the year that San Simeon was donated to the people of California by the Hearst Corporation. But when Life Magazine did their big cover story announcing it would soon open, a 14-page story full of information, Julia Morgan's name did not occur a single time. Mm-hmm. She was the sole designer, interior designer, landscape architect. She was never mentioned. And even as late as 1966, when Joan Didion, the great architecture critic and socialist critic, you know, she did an essay called A Return to Xanadu. It was just about San Simeon, her impressions there in childhood later on. Julia's name was never mentioned. Well, Joan so Didion, it, you mentioned in your book, too, that Joan Didion uh, thought that she as a critique, that she was too too compliant and, and therefore too female an architect, right? Well, yeah, J- Joan Didion did indeed say that. And she really was just echoing kind of the conventional wisdom right. of the late 1970s and 1980s. Now, Julia, you know, had never wanted to be interviewed. She didn't write about architecture. She didn't publish her work in magazines. You know, she just wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. And she was so passionate about it. But, but... You know, she did save all of those papers, and and I think that was for posterity. And 
Uh, she didn't often like to be photographed, but the last photo I have to share with you is is her, the day that she consented willingly in 1929. She was the second recipient ever of her alma mater, UC Berkeley's honorary doctorate in 1929. And um, she always hoped that, that there'd be a young woman coming along to follow in her footsteps, but she would hire a lot of, you know, about half women, half men, and but the women would get married in a few years and not go on, you know? So I just feel, especially now, the more that we know about this remarkable artist and, and remarkable person, um, you know, the more inspiration we can take from her. Someone who loved architecture and who really, um, you know, lived a very, very full and passionate life, even though her passion was for um, creativity. So I hope I hope that your viewers have enjoyed uh, seeing kind of this visual story. And I look mm. forward, George, to, to talking in further depth with you as well. Well, I think it's really important to reinforce the idea of not only did she do all these buildings and everything, but she was a trailblazer. I mean, the first female at the French school, you know, and, and as you said, she didn't get the diploma, but she got the certificate, which, I mean, she, she finished. And uh, she was prevented. She would have yeah. gotten the diploma. If, if she'd if had time, she would have gotten it, right. Weird. Yeah. But she was never bitter. That's no. the other thing that's so interesting is that, um, and, and I think... I don't think you save that many letters and diaries unless you are thinking of history somehow, you know. Right. But even in her personal reflections, her private diaries, which I do quote in the book, especially toward the end, she's never she's never bitter. Mm -hmm. uh, she just she just went on and found a way, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so inspiring about her life. Yeah, the the honorary degree that you uh, mentioned there that was from which university? The University of California, her mm -hmm. alma mater. Her alma mater. And in addition to that, in 2016, she finally was awarded the Architects uh, Prize. What, what What's the name of that prize? The American Institute of Architects. It's the gold medal, their highest honor. I was one of the nominating committee members, you mm. know, and they had never given it to a woman when mm. she received it posthumously. And mm. so, um, you know, I feel like there's a lot of redressing mm. uh, that needs to be done and that and that this biography goes a ways toward it, but there's still a great deal of work to do. And that's what's exciting about donating her letters, uh, mm. you know, to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. When, when all of this is finished, we're in the process. It's a complicated process, but within a few years, I hope it will be all available. And then scholars from anywhere in the world will be able to study Julia Morgan. Well, I think also for the people who live in the Bay area, they maybe aren't aware that Julia Morgan designed some of the buildings, but but you mentioned Asilomar, which is a very famous uh, resort, and uh, which was originally done for the YWCA as well, right? Now it's open that's to right. the public and, and a, and a re resort that people go to for conferences and so on. But um, that's right on the beach uh, in Monterey, and it's an absolutely gorgeous place. And so there's San Simeon. Further down, there's Asilomar. But here, in, it, we, as you mentioned, the Berkeley City Club. But in addition to that, Chapel of the Chimes, which is the... the uh, uh, why don't you tell the story about that? Because it's quite, quite interesting why she got that commission. Um, it, it was the first big crematorium, right, uh, in the area. Chapel of the Chimes is in North Oakland, mm -hmm. and it's a columbarium, and that is a, a, um, it, it's a mausoleum for crematory urns. Mm -hmm. And she called them her Chapel of the Chimes family, you know. And when she uh, was designing it, it's all concrete, and it's open every day. And I must say... Um, if if the Bay Area uh, uh, residents would like to see something uh, that uh, really shows her work, it's it's definitely worth seeing. It is a lyrical, reverent, joyous building, even in spite of its you know memorial quality mm -hmm. and magnificent. And the inspiration for it was the Spanish monastery, which she was uh, you know watching be dismantled in Spain. She uh, only saw it vicariously. You know, she sent one of her employees over to Spain to actually do this work with the uh, the the uh, dealer who'd sold it to Hearst. But so it really looks uh, kind of like a, a a medieval monastery, and it is a magnificent building. There's also at Berkeley she designed a uh, Girton Hall, which was a women's uh, uh, um, kind of clubhouse. Mm -hmm. It's now known as the the Julia Morgan Hall, and then also the uh, women's gymnasium, mm -hmm. uh, which three swimming pools and, and WR uh, donated the money for that. It's called the Phoebe Apperson Hearst uh, women's gymnasium. It was in mm -hmm. uh, built 
uh, between uh, Julie Morgan and Bernard Maybeck as a collaboration in 1927 to honor uh, Phoebe Hearst's contribution. I regret to say that it is in a terrible condition right now and that as of 2018, the university planners have uh, marked it for demolition. Mm -hmm. So um, if anyone is interested in uh, fighting that, there's the Berkeley Architectural Heritage Association, B-A-H-A, -A, and there's a petition and mm -hmm. a lawsuit uh, mm -hmm. because, it, you know, the building that that uh, was collaborated on by Julia Morgan and Bernard Maybeck in honor of Phoebe Hurst and donated by William Randolph Hearst. <laughs> the UC campus in a nutshell, you know, it's a glorious building and must be saved. But yeah. there are other YWCA. She built the Chinese YWCA in San Francisco, mm -hmm. which looked, is, is today also open to the public as the Chinese Historical Society. And it, it is uh, beautiful. She studied the motifs of China. Mm -hmm. And uh, did an absolutely marvelous job on it. You mentioned, George, that in Los Angeles area in Hollywood, she built another YWCA called the Studio Club. Mm -hmm. And it was for the actresses uh, who would, were flooding in from every small town in America waiting to be discovered. And they needed a safe uh, place where they could economically live while they went to auditions. And they could live there for three years. And as you mentioned, quite a number of notable actresses did, including Donna Reed, Rita Moreno, and Marilyn Monroe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she should have a little footnote there, you know, that not only was I an architect, but I, I inspired the career of these famous uh, actresses. <laughs> exactly right. Um, so there's a question that's come in from the audience uh, about those stones. Okay. The, yes. the, uh, the fact that, that uh, you, you dismantled a Spanish cloisters. Now, as you mentioned, it had already been secularized for the people who aren't aware of what that means. The, the church had already done whatever ceremony they need to to, to to desanctify it so that it could be used for other purposes and it was not used as a, as a monastery anymore or a nunnery. And then they bought it off of the farmer. And, and, and lots of those buildings were being dismantled then. You can't do that anymore, right? You, exactly no, right. Nothing, nothing like that can be done. But at the time, it was done uh, a lot. Yeah. But Hearst bought two Spanish monasteries, right. 12th century Cistercian monasteries. One was being used as a stable, as I mentioned. The other was being used as a wheat farm. And yes, it was in the 1830s, actually, that these buildings had been secularized. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, yes, they were dismantled. And obviously, it's, it, it is a controversial subject today. But uh, W.R. was hoping to do this uh, wonderful medieval monastery. And actually, maybe some of uh, our Bay Area viewers and listeners are aware that the stones were given from the monastery was called Santa Maria de Ovila. And um, they were given to, to the de young museum, the old one, you know, before the, it was rebuilt and they were crates, wooden crates full of these marked stones. And then uh, there was a, a couple of fires that were set. The crates burned, the markings burned off the stones. The stones were scavenged, carried away. Um, uh, some of them, uh, are at the Garden of Fragrance in uh, Golden Gate Park as a part of the Arboretum. Uh, they're mm -hmm. retaining walls. Um, and so it's as sad it might have been. Now, not that long ago, within the last couple of decades, an, an actual Cistercian order, mm -hmm. uh, the Order of Our Lady of New Clairvaux in Vina, which is a small town named Stockton, uh, near Stockton, they actually uh, were able to put together enough uh, stones from the chapter house, which is where the monks would spend, you know, the bulk of their time, the most mm. uh, decorated and important uh, room. And uh, and they put it together. And so if you go to monasterystones.org, uh, you'll see that, you know, they took the old stones and augmented them with new ones. But it's uh, the only part of a building that would have been used in all of its glory. And it would have been between the Japanese tea garden and um, the, the old D young was where this monastery, uh, mm -hmm. the, you know, this cloisters museum was going to go. And Julia spent, it meant weeks of bending over these burned stones, checking, trying to put things together. And she so wanted that building that would have been the last great collaboration that she did with WR for 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, Worked on it, and yet it was a, it's a sad uh, might have been. It was never it was never built. Yeah, that is said might have been because it would have been a great addition to the museums of San Francisco. That's for sure. And it would have been full of his medieval art collection as well. You know, mm -hmm. I mean that 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 was the idea. Right. I, I suspect some of those stones ended up in homes up there uh, on, on uh, near the Presidio and everything. So. <laughs> and some of them are still in Golden Gate Park. Actually, uh, you can you know you can see them. Um, mm -hmm. uh, 
there was an idea to line the walls of the Embarcadero BART station with them. Unfortunately, that didn't ever happen. <laughs> <laughs> they got that idea from Moscow, the, uh, the, the, uh, the metro stop for the museums have all kinds of art in them in, in the Moscow underground. That's right, exactly. Uh, really quite stunning. Um, yeah. I don't know if they keep guards down there at night or not, but they must, I would think. Uh, so, and, and, you know, on the same uh, topic of buildings that used to have something and then have been used as barns for, for 100 years before people take them apart, you can go to India and see lots of buildings like that, that the British built, old palaces and stuff like that, that are now uh, places where animals live and, and so on. And, and you can, you can kind of tell what it used to be. But it, it's sometimes hard when you see the building to imagine what it must have looked like when it was still furnished because you're just looking at the bones. It's not that much different than when you go to an architectural site from three to four thousand years ago, and you just see the the, the uh, base stones in the in the ground, and and uh, someone's got to figure out what it really looked like based right. on that. We feel very differently today, you know, about cultural patrimony. Uh, yeah. But when WR was buying these things, you know, um, often they were being abandoned or neglected. Uh, there are forty antique ceilings at San Simeon, and they range in age from about five hundred years to. Uh, 300 years, and they're all wood, mm. and they were taken apart, you know, and none of them is structural. Um, they're all bolted to the actual bearing ceilings that are concealed above them. Mm. So W.R. wasn't just collecting, you know, paintings and statues. Mm. He was an omnivorous collector, and mm. his elements of architecture are among the finest things. Architecture, silver, textiles of every type, especially tapestries, uh, Renaissance furniture and Greek pottery. Those were those are the great strengths of his collection. And I think that probably it's best that the California State Parks has opened it to the public rather than have it be, you know, a student residence or somehow a university, you know, mm -hmm. um, because it has been uh, cared for, uh, beautifully cared for. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it's been shared with more than 45 million people since it opened on the 2nd of June of 1958. And you, you mentioned in your book uh, that it was a shame that Citizen Kane uh, gave a bad name to the whole idea of, of, of this place. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit about that? You know, Citizen Kane is one of the most famous movies around. Orson Welles did it. Orson Welles played the W.R. Hearst stand-in character. So, so um, what do you think was gotten wrong by that? Or, and and what the, since you worked there, the outcome was, at least at the beginning, that it, it made it uninteresting to people. I think that's very true. Um, mm. People saw the film and, you know, it came out in 1941 and it wasn't an initial success at all. It was right. really in the 60s and the film classes, you know, that it really started to gain um, prominence. But um, Orson Welles uh, had never been a guest there. Um, you know, it's just one of the many ways I think this San Simeon is really an embodiment of a lot of, of elements of our first half of the 20th century. It was it was the home of a media mogul. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was built by a woman, and its hostess was a movie star, <laughs> and demoralized by a film. And Citizen Kane definitely cast a very long shadow. The uh, opening of the film, if if uh, our our uh, guests have seen it, it starts with a padlocked fence and this and uh, house in the this glooming uh, a gloomy looming castle in the distance, Xanadu. That was a cell. It was a painted glass cell meant to look like Mont Saint Michel, you know. Mm -hmm. But it definitely the movie was based on Hearst, no doubt about that. And it was a scathing indictment of him as a press lord. And actually, a uh, 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 Mankiewicz, who, who had collaborated with Orson Welles on the screenplay, had been a guest there. And there were some very elaborate plans for uh, the sets, but mm -hmm. they ran out of money. It was being shot at, on, on set, on studio at RKO when Orson Welles was all of 24, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, so what they did was, was confine the action to just a few uh, sets. They had an enormous fireplace, one staircase. They used a lot of dark cloth. They made it look gloomy and empty and vast. And and the portrait stuck, you mm -hmm. know. And when really uh, San Simeon itself uh, was was a place of light and a lot of joy and laughter, not at all a, a gloomy, uh, looming Xanadu. Yeah, yeah. Well, it shows what a little bit of PR can do. <laughs> <laughs> well, WR knew that better than anybody. And he honestly, did. <laughs> newspapers... You know, were exactly that kind of a grand gesture that that uh, would tell the facts and then a whole lot of things that were maybe not the facts. You know, so perhaps mm -hmm. it's a, an appropriate irony that he has been for many years remembered more by a film, a fictional film, right. than by historical fact. 
But it really uh, was, I think, unfair to Julia Morgan, mm -hmm. you know, whose work was, I think, uh, uh, looked down on in part because of, of the impact of Citizen Kane. Mm -hmm. So her work didn't get the right, uh, you know, uh, respect. I think you should tell a couple of the stories of the things that she did for her family members in more detail. You kind of did the outline. But the story of her youngest brother, whom she loved, um, and, and did, that's the brother that went to, to Paris as well to study, right? Yes, his yeah. name was Avery. He was four years younger than she was, and they had many things in common. They were both musicians. Julia played the violin and the piano. Avery played both those instruments and also the organ. And he uh, was always a, a sensitive young man, and he did join her in Paris, and he was hazed horribly. Can you imagine? He was small. Mm -hmm. He was brother of this notorious woman who'd had the temerity to enter, mm -hmm. you know, this male dominion of the école. He would come back to their apartment. They had stayed together for two years uh, with his, you know, clothes ripped or his hat wrecked or some, you know, prank every single day. Um, and, and he never did get into the uh, école. He took these same examinations, but he, mm. was, he didn't pass them. Julia hired him when she returned. Um, she, he was a draftsman in her office. Back then, they called it uh, nerves, you know. Uh, I, I'm sure that all that hazing didn't help. But Avery, as it turned out, did have um, early onset dementia. Uh, he, he would wander away at lunch and not come back for days. And he continued to wander, as we know, is a big issue with dementia mm -hmm. uh, patients. And she would have to organize um, searches for him. When, when he could no longer be a draftsman, she hired him to uh, be her chauffeur. Mm -hmm. She didn't drive, and he drove her all around the Bay Area so she could visit her job sites. Um, but uh, he ended up having to uh, live in an institution, and she cared for him uh, their entire lives and uh, loved him and, and missed him very much. And sadly, during uh, the Second World War in 1943, when you can imagine San Francisco just enveloped in so much chaos of mm. construction and strangers, Avery wandered and Julia could not find him. Mm -hmm. And after nine months, his body was discovered uh, mm. northeast of Oakland. Uh, he had died of starvation mm. and exposure. So um, he had a very difficult life, and um, and she was devoted to him. The whole family, they were all very close. But mm -hmm. um, she seems to have been the one who bore the burden when her mother, as I said, her mother had um, issues with uh, dementia as well. And after their father died of a stroke, and Avery had cared for him and had a breakdown when their father died, um, uh, anyway, their mother didn't want to leave the house in Oakland, but the neighborhood in 1923 wasn't as nice as it had been in the 1880s, mm -hmm. but she didn't want anything to change. And so what Julia did was on a lot next door to the house that she had designed for her younger sister and her sister Emma's husband, she built um, another home and it was an exact replica of their mother's room upstairs. And mm -hmm. they had Mrs. Morgan over for dinner, you know, at the sister's house, and they walked her next door. Downstairs was a nurse's apartment, but she never knew she'd moved. There was a yeah. fire fireplace, and all the furniture was right where it belonged. And it's so typical yeah. of the way she felt about architecture. Yeah, that was, it, that's quite a story uh, about recreating her mother's room so that she can move her without her knowing it, basically. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, she had she, she had nieces and nephews, and she paid attention to that. I mean, she didn't, you say she's alone, but she didn't live a lonely life. She had a lot of people in her life besides Hearst and, and all the workers. Now, the other thing that was interesting about your story was how she dealt with all the workers. You know, she, she was like the foreman of the whole project um, and, and especially oversaw what the artists were doing and told them when it wasn't good enough and making sure that they're happy and all that kind of stuff, especially during the Depression when it was hard for, for uh, to pay them. That's all true. Yeah. She had almost like a guild, you know, her own medieval workshop of artisans. Mm -hmm. And she believed in that whole idea of the arts and crafts. You know, we don't know the cathedral architects, generally speaking. Mostly right. we don't know. They're the anonymous artisans who gave their hearts and souls uh, to their work. And she did believe in that. And she loved to work with artists. And I think that was one of the great, joys of the project at San Simeon. Hearst was slow to pay his bills. He eventually did, but he was slow about it. And he changed his mind a lot. And he wasn't an easy client. 
Um, he very much respected her and her insights and skills. They did truly collaborate. But I think a lot of the pleasure for her was in dealing with uh, these artists and um, and also dealing with such a wonderful art collection that that he was assembling. She saw uh, what he was trying to do. And it would be rare today to have a man and woman collaborating so closely you know, platonically in for 28 years, mm -hmm. it was absolutely unprecedented uh, in from 1919 to 1947. And one of her employees says, I can never go back to San Simeon now without feeling like it's haunted by their two great personalities. He said, when those two bent over a drawing, the rest of us could have been 100 miles away. So it really was. Uh, you know, a, a hymn to creativity, if you will. And but that mm. was true of all of her work, mm. even the the uh, the uh, playhouse she designed for the little daughter of the taxi driver who took her up and down the hill to San Simeon, you know, right, right, right. She did, and she had many, many young friends, children of her employees, you know, whom she would send gifts and correspond with. She had a very uh, active social life, right. you know, uh, even though it didn't, you know, her romances were were uh, reserved for architecture, but she was not. <laughs> solitary person at all right i think that's important especially because the pictures of her make her look like she's a she's a, a an old maid you know sort of uh solitary you know I'm not saying librarians are all like that but the, the sort of that look instead of this artistic creature um right and if especially at the end you said she 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 liked to hide her face after the operation, you know, photograph, hated it yeah. and didn't like to be interviewed either. But she had, in effect, a uniform that she wore, and it was mm. a very practical garb. She started wearing it in the late 19th century. It was mm. based on something called a walking suit from Paris. But she had a long wool skirts and um, a long jacket with deep pockets. And then when she climbed scaffolding, she wore men's trousers under it. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it was eminently practical, but it does look kind of austere and masculine. And she, yes, if you see her in a photograph, she's usually wishing it wasn't being taken. <laughs> <laughs> she's not always looking warm, but she had a lovely sense of humor. And she was just generally speaking, a lovely person. A lovely person, but not without uh, a mind of steel to get her things done. No. That's it's right. a, nice, a nice combination because that's not that usual. So why don't you tell a little, a couple stories about that? Because it, it, those were really fascinating that she, she would insist and she had her way of making sure that, that, that uh, Mr. Hurst did it her way without really immediately knocking him over the head. That's <laughs> quite true. Um, one time early on, she actually threatened to quit. And um, what happened was it was 1923 and W.R. felt that they were overspending. Now, he never acknowledged that a reason for that was his constant changes of mind. Mm -hmm. So he wrote her and said, now, Miss Morgan, I'm going to bring this um, man. He does my finances and he's just going to oversee things. And, um, you know, it'll it'll work out better. And she wrote back and she said, well, thank you, Mr. Hurst. You know, I'm not quite sure how this is going to work because I deal with artists and they have artistic temperaments. And, um, you know, they, I'm not sure that anyone else could do such an effective job. She said, but I do want to say it has been a pleasure working for you. Thank you so much. And and needless <laughs> to say, that guy never set foot on the hilltop. <laughs> nobody's um, carpet. You know, I mean, she could stand up for herself and had yeah. it, you know, and defend her own vision. Yeah. Um, but it really was about the joy of, of creating, of, of playing at work for her. Yeah, well, she certainly got a lot done. He said over 700 buildings or 700 projects, and uh, not too many of them ended up being like the uh, the Cloisters-type museum that didn't get built. Uh, most things got right. done, right? And if they were done, they very and, and survived, say, the 50s and 60s, they've very seldom been altered. Maybe yeah. a bathroom has been modified or a kitchen updated, but her buildings were such did such beautiful jobs of of serving the needs of their creators that these women's clubs and houses are all still exist and many of them all around the bay area and, and really all over california well i think it's one of the things that's very impressive is very so early in her career she did that fairmont hotel project after the earthquake and and did what everybody else said couldn't be done so she showed she was a civil engineer and and i assume that they that the fairmont hotel didn't get hurt in the 1989 earthquake or did it they had to redo it after that i don't really know 
You know, I don't know either, but yeah. I do know that she was really known for engineering and even say at San Simeon where she didn't engineer the buildings by that time, even though she had a civil engineering degree, you know, the, the, uh, the profession continued to develop. She worked closely with the civil engineers, but mm. there was an earthquake at San Simeon and mm. it was called the San Simeon quake in 2003 and it was 6.5 mm. on the Richter scale and the epicenter was 10 miles west under under sea of San Simeon. And about a dozen statues fell off mantelpieces and uh, some, uh, you know, a couple of uh, chimneys needed to be repointed. And that's it. Mm, wow. You know, she really made sure that her buildings uh, survived. And and you said, I think, if I remember correctly, that uh, she took took uh, as a mentor from the past Vitruvius uh, and what he what he liked. So that, that's an ancient an ancient architect. Yes. And so. The the watchword, the tenants were that architecture should be beautiful, functional, and useful. And that describes every single one of Julia Morgan's hundreds of creations. And it seems to actually describe her as well. <laughs> oh, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. Great book. And thank you very much for joining us at the Commonwealth Club uh, and, and uh, sharing with us what the contents of what you've worked on for quite a while. Um, it's a wonderful summation of her life and, and her architecture and the beautiful pictures that your, uh, your architectural photographer did. They really are some of the best pictures I've seen of things that I've seen many pictures of already. So, well, I'll pass that on to him, George. And it's been an honor and a pleasure to be with you today and with all, all, all of the viewers and listeners. Thank you so much for having me. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 120th year of enlightened discussion. We hope you enjoyed that about Oakland's great architect Julia Morgan and we'll see you again for another program soon. Bye. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.